Good morning, church, and let me say welcome to everyone joining us online from every living room, every dining room table, every venue in houses spread throughout the GTA, and and again through the wonders of YouTube in regions all around the world. We're glad that you're here. You're catching us in the middle of a series that we've titled Navigating Life. This is week three in our series, and it's grounded in and based in one of the most famous texts in the Bible, a short little verse written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And as part of the series, we agreed that we were going to commit these words to memory. So how's everybody doing with that? Let's try it together. Romans 8, 28, from memory, 3, 2, 1, go. Uh-huh. That's kind of what I thought. Well, let's do this. Let me bring it up on the screen. But on the screen, it's going to have a few blanks in it. So let's try this. Let's say it together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Keep on working on that because this is just, it's such a magnificent verse, not just for the series, but for navigating all the twists and turns of life. We know that God works in all things. Now, as believers, the idea is not that that means somehow we get better things than other people or that we should expect better stuff is going to happen to us along the way. Uh, It's that in all things, the good things and the bad things, that God is still at work and he's doing something in us. It's not so much that good things will happen to us, It's that through God, good things are happening in us. And that brings us to today's topic. We're going to look at the subject of growth. Growth is one of the things that happens in us. In fact, growth is such a fabulous part of what it means to be a human being. It's one of the things that makes parenting such a joy and a delight to watch this infant that you once held in your arms now sit behind the driver's seat and turn the ignition key. To watch them walk across a stage and accept their diploma. To watch them get into the car and head off to work in their first job. To watch them walk down the aisle and then to hold their child, your grandchild, in your arms. Growth is a wonderful thing. And of all the kinds of growth, there's something about growth in character about growth in the innermost soul, the core of who we are, about spiritual growth that feels absolutely noble. It may be the most important growth of all. But there's also something really humbling about that growth. So let me ask you this. Is there, is there anybody who's watching who's ever felt disappointed when they think about their own journey, their own pathway of growth in their spiritual life, in their emotional life, in their thought life, all that inner life. Have you ever been disappointed? Maybe you thought by now that you would be praying better or more regularly or without your mind wandering all over the place. Maybe you imagined that you would be less anxious about the future and more trusting of God in the present. 
maybe you're disappointed because you thought by now you wouldn't so often fall victim to temptations, but they still trouble you, and you still fall. Maybe you thought by now that you'd be better with finances, that this wouldn't still be a sore spot in your life, that, that by now you'd learn to have become a more generous person, making a bigger investment, a bigger difference in the lives of other people who have so much less than we do. Maybe you thought you'd be a better family person, a better spouse, a better parent. Maybe for some of you there's pain in that. And maybe you thought you'd be a a better brother or sister or a better friend. Maybe you imagine that at this stage in your life that you'd be sharing your faith in, in more natural, more winsome ways with other people. Maybe you thought, you know, I'm going to have a better grip on stuff, or more importantly, I'm not going to allow stuff to have such a strong grip on me. Maybe you think about your words and that you'd have a better grip on your tongue, but you still let angry things fly or, or stupid things fly. And you don't talk when you should or, or you talk too much when you shouldn't. Or maybe you just thought that you'd know God or feel connected to God in a deeper way than you do right now. And sometimes when we're together in the room and we do that mass confession thing, I'll just ask people to raise their hands in kind of a lighthearted way, if, if that's them. Because I want people to look around and see that they're not alone as, as they glance at a room where, where most of the hands are up. But to be honest, this, this one feels just a little bit heavier than, than a raising of hands. And the truth is we're not in the same room together at all. So wherever you are right now, and don't worry if there might be people around you, that's okay. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to take a risk. If, if that's you, if you've ever been disappointed about the trajectory of spiritual growth in your life, I'm going to ask you to stand. None of us can see you. I, I can't see you. But you can see me. And I want you to know that even if it weren't for the pulpit and if it weren't for the camera, I'd be standing. In fact, most of us at some point in our lives will be standing when it comes to this one. If you are standing, why don't you go ahead and be seated now. We're going to talk about this today. We're going to talk about the mystery of growth. And I want to locate it, at least to begin with, in a parable that Jesus told. It's actually, it's one of the more obscure parables that Jesus told. This is not one that gets used a lot in worship. It's not one that gets preached on a lot. It only occurs in one of the Gospels. You find it here in the Gospel of Mark. You find it in in chapter 4. And we're going to read this from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 31. And you're welcome to follow along with me as we read. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or whether he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, but he doesn't know how. It's a mystery. And all by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he he puts the sickle to it 
because the harvest has come. It's a brief, very pictorial description of of growth. Uh, again, such such an amazing thing, such a, a miraculous thing, but such a such a mysterious thing. The man in Jesus' story, the one who's cultivating in the fields, he's involved, but but he's not controlling it. He's not manufacturing the growth. He doesn't even really understand it. And a lot of times. Growth is going on whether we understand that it's happening or not. It's just amazing. It's true of the way our bodies grow. It's true the the way that children grow. It can also be true to some extent of our spiritual growth, the change of character that goes on in the heart of a human being. In fact, this is probably something that in the cycle of history ought to be written in much larger letters than it is. Because, you know, empires rise and fall. But they are trivial in comparison to the rise and fall of what goes on in the human soul, of all the growth, of all the cycles of growth in the world. This may be the most vital. And in quiet moments, we, I think we know that this is true. For me or for you or for for a person to be moving towards God or to be moving away, to move towards being a more loving person or more indifferent, to be more confident, more hopeful, or, or to living more with despair, to become more truthful and honest, a person of authenticity, or one of those people who, who just kind of goes dark, to be liberated or or to fall prey to addiction, to move towards heaven, or the opposite, to be drifting intentionally or not towards hell. It's the most important thing going on in the universe. And again, the rise and fall of nations pales in comparison to what God is doing in the human heart. I've spent a good chunk of my life and most of my schooling whether in psychology or ministry or theology, trying to figure out how it is that change happens and why it is that it's so hard. I mean, why, why is it so hard to help people to grow spiritually? Why is it so hard for myself? And, and let's be honest, probably some of you are struggling with that stuff too. Maybe if, if we're looking for a starting point, the starting point is just in naming some of the things that are obstacles for us. Naming some of the things that are mysteries for us. Like, I just, I don't get how it is that people grow in that area. Just, just name it. And then what we're going to do as we, as we work through this story and a number of texts in Scripture is try to move towards what is clear, what's not quite so mysterious. And, and as best as we can, put a stake in the ground there. So let's, let's start with some of the questions by, by naming some of the mysteries. Here's a few. Why is it that there are some people who, who believe in God or, or say that they do? who are involved in the church, maybe their whole life long, they, they go to church year after year, they do the church thing, and, and yet they're joyless, and they don't seem to love very much, 
and their kids can't stand them and nobody wants to be around them and they're judgmental. And, and of course, I'm not talking about you. But, but why is it that there are also people who are outside the church who don't even believe in God, who seem to be quite joyful, seem to be quite authentic or honest, are capable of being quite generous. I mean, how is God going to sort all that stuff out? Why is it that, that believers in Christ are sometimes such absolute knuckleheads, and, and yet there are others who are unbelievers who, who seem on some days to be really pretty fantastic people? And I don't know. Why is it that some babies just, they seem to come right out of their mother's womb. Some babies from their birth, they grow up and it just looks like that the way that they are made, they're going to struggle with things like anxiety and depression and they're, they're going to be fearful or shy or they're going to be socially awkward or have trouble building relationships and that's going to be a pattern for their whole life. And yet there are other people who just seem to be born with these fabulous, effervescent personalities with a high level of resilience, and they're, they're intelligent, they're emotionally intelligent, and they're charming, and, and they're going to lead, well, it feels like kind of a charmed life, and it happens, it seems, right out of the womb. They're just pre-wired that way. Why is it? Why is it that growth seems to come so easily to some, and it's so hard for others? Why is it that some people's parents have to work so hard? They read all the books, they go to all the seminars, they pray for their kids, they get involved in church, they get their kids involved in the, in the church, and, and still at the end of it, their, their kids break their hearts. And then there are other parents who, let's be honest, they're just, they're absolute train wrecks. Their marriage is a train wreck, their life is a train wreck, they do everything wrong, and yet somehow... I'll admit this is rare, but somehow their kids still grow up to be pretty fabulous. I don't know. Why is it that the formula for spiritual growth seems to be so elusive? And one person can read the Bible and they just get it and they are ennobled by it. He becomes more Christ-like. She becomes more noble. He's more genuine. She's more true. And yet there are other people who can read the Bible, and they can read it quite a lot, and it just makes them judgmental and puffed up and superior and arrogant, and they seem to only want to use it to win arguments. I don't know. We wrestle with that kind of stuff, or at least I know I wrestle with that stuff. We look around and we wonder, why, why is it so hard? And then there's sometimes that, that inside, as people drift into those moments of quiet self-reflection, those places where they don't, they don't talk about it very much out loud, sometimes people start to ask, is it really worth it? I mean, really is it worth hanging in there with all this? Going to church, reading the Bible, reaching out to God, worship, is it, is it worth it? I mean, does growth, does it really happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it happens. You know what happens. 
I know what happens. And even if it's still mysterious, how it happens, and even if still we can't diagram out all the circumstances and, and develop a, an easy five-step plan, we know that it happens, and we know it when we see it, and we know it when it's happening in us. And we all want to flourish, don't we? We all want to thrive. So let me say at least this much, that there is no invitation I know of, that there is no opportunity that there is no offer like this simple one that Jesus gave the human race when he said, come follow me. Apprentice yourself to me. If growth is the goal, come to me. And for centuries now, people do that. And as they do that, somehow they discover that If I lose everything else that the world has to offer, but if I find this one thing, this treasure that Jesus brings, then losing all the other stuff doesn't matter. And in the same way, if I gain all that stuff, but lose sight of God and lose hold of Jesus, lose hold of the person that he's inviting and apprenticing me to be, then all that other stuff It just doesn't matter. In Jesus' day, people would see this. They would come to know this, and they would say, I will sacrifice anything to follow this man, and I will do it with joy. And Jesus would often tell stories to try and communicate this truth to people. And he'd use these these vivid pictures, quite, quite often undignified pictures of their fervor, of their vision. It would captivate people as he talked about what it is that he had come to offer. He'd say things like this, the kingdom of God is is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it. And in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had. And he, and he bought that field. That's kind of a sneaky thing to do. And again, the, the picture isn't of Jesus talking about sneaky real estate practices. No, that in his joy, he set aside everything else that he had in order to acquire this. And again, Jesus said, this is also in, in Matthew 13, this is verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold all that he had and he bought it. That line, that, that line about selling everything you have. When people were doing that, they weren't doing it feeling like, oh, I'm a martyr for Christ. Look at me. Woe is me. I gave it all up. No, this is the best thing I ever found. Whatever it takes, whatever I have to give up, it's a pittance in comparison to what I have gained. To know Jesus to follow Jesus, to love him, to serve him, to be aligned to him, to be changed by him. That's worth every ounce of devotion that you can bring. Now again, we can't manufacture spiritual growth, but we can, in the same way the man in that first parable is at work as a farmer, we can cultivate the ground. We can prepare the ground of our lives in such a way that when God moves, growth 
happens. Let me give you a a verse from the book of Proverbs. Just this one little line from, from Proverbs chapter 11. A life devoted to things is a dead life. I ought to put this in an email to everybody in the GTA. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. But a God-shaped life is like a flourishing tree. You see those two images being contrasted, a, a dead stump and a living tree. A tree can't make growth happen. It, it's dependent on all kinds of conditions that are outside of its control. The warming rays of the sun, the nourishing rain from the sky. But here's what a tree can do. A tree can put down roots. Growth is a gift. Growth happens. But there are, maybe you should call them preconditions. What are the preconditions? We put down roots. We don't manufacture growth. We're not in control. There's no room for pride around it. Look at how much I've grown. Ha ha, good as me. But to grow, to flourish, to, to thrive in our character, in our spirit, in our relationship with God, it's worth investing in some of those preconditions. Our job is to put down roots. And there'll be certain, certain practices, things that we can engage in that are the preconditions for growth. They allow growth to happen. And those things, they're worth the commitment. I mean, they're worth 100% commitment. And I, I believe, and I know that there are people hard at work in the life of MCBC, working on discipleship plans that I can't wait to see be unveiled for all of us, who are 100% convinced that 100% commitment to spiritual growth should be a normal thing in the life of the church. That it ought not to look heroic. It ought not to look extraordinary. It shouldn't stand out in the crowd. It's just what we ought to be. And it's what we ought to call each other to be. Why wouldn't we? It's not a contest. It's not competitive. We don't compare. There's life and growth. And there's the alternative, which is shriveling up and dying. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He says, no prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth. And to tell it in love, like Christ in everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God and robust in love. There's a little line, it's a quote, and those of you who are following along in your notes, you'll have it there in front of you. This is from a book written centuries ago. The language maybe is a little archaic, but it's a powerful bit of writing on the role of commitment or intention, or if you'd like, investing in the preconditions for growth in spiritual life. 
This is from a book that William Law wrote called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He wrote, the disciple of Jesus does not ask what is allowable and pardonable, but what is commendable and what is praiseworthy. You see, somebody who gets it, somebody who is following, someone who is 100% committed to the preconditions for growth, they're not asking, how much can I get away with before God blows the whistle in my life? They're asking, what is going to get me there? But I've sat in on a lot of job interviews, probably lots of you have as well. I've never done a job interview with somebody who asks, you know, what's the least amount that I can get away with doing here and still keep this job? I've done a lot of weddings. And I've never done one where the couples got up there and their vow is, what is the least amount of fidelity that I can get away with and still stay married? Sometimes it feels, doesn't it, like in the life of the church, that our discussion is around how much is God allowing us to get away with? I mean, what are the rules and how close to the edge of the rules are we allowed to get? And what happens when we step over the line? That's not really the question of discipleship, is it? It's not what will God allow, it's what does God want? What is God inviting me to? What is he calling out in me? What is he calling me to be? It's not because God is severe, and it's not because my commitment is some big heroic thing. It's because that's life. I mean, that's the precondition for life and for growth. We're all pursuing something. Why not give ourselves to the pursuit of something noble? Something with eternal weight and value to the growth of our own soul. Let me just say a few things about about growth and, and then we'll wrap up for today. I believe that Spiritual growth requires community, and I know a lot of you believe this along with me. It's not a solo deal. I I don't just pursue this on my own from the privacy of my own basement study. Jesus said it again and again. It's a remarkable claim, and it's, it's especially remarkable when you think about who Jesus is. Everything that we know of God invested into this human being who bore the name Jesus. Listen to what he says. Wherever two or three people are gathered in my name, I'm there. There I am in the midst of them. Think about what that means for our gatherings. We get into these relationships with each other and we, we do so knowing that, that growth happens when we're able to tell the truth. Speak the truth to each other, speak the truth about ourselves, admonish each other, encourage each other. It's hard to grow without that. So let me say this, and maybe it hits a tender spot for some, but there is a growth that happens when we acknowledge the tender spots in our lives. So folks, if, if you're one of those people who gather together regularly for worship, but cannot for the life of you 
think of any meaningful community that you're a part of in the church. And by that, I don't mean sitting in a chair when we were together on a Sunday morning or sitting in your own chair now that we're apart. I mean meaningful community. If that's you, can I just say that that you are probably not cultivating the ground, not doing so fully at least, for growth in your life. You need relationships, whereas Aristotle used to say, where friendship is like training in virtue. In the early church, they just loved that idea. They couldn't get enough of each other. They couldn't get enough of this idea that being together in these little communities, they saw explosive growth, not just numerical growth, but inner growth, spiritual growth. It's why we're so big on the idea of doing life together in small groups, small groups, life groups, whatever we call them, getting people into relationships, because that's part of the precondition for growing. I want to say something particularly to parents and to young people this weekend. I know we're, we're coming up on the end of another school year, and, and it's been a hard year. And it's been a particularly hard year for students who are in the midst of, of transition. They're looking at what's ahead, and the road ahead just is uncertain and hard. And, and we know that we live in an area where where for young people to do really well is, is really hard, and there's so much pressure on them, and it's on them all the time. The relentless weight of having to achieve and having to do better, and how are your grades, and where are you going next fall, and what school did you get into? And Can I just say this? God forgive us if we are more concerned about getting our kids into the right school then we are getting them into the grip of God's grace. God forgive us if we're more concerned about getting our kids into Harvard than we are getting them into heaven. I mean, we just have to break that. Uh, and just to be really clear, clear I, uh, I thought I'd give you four reasons why getting your kids into heaven is actually better than getting your kids into Harvard. Here's the first. It actually costs less to get in. Because Jesus paid the price. It has better housing. And we know Jesus is hard at work on that. He said, I'm going there now, and I'm preparing a place for you. It has a much more diverse population. Every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together into one glorious community. And we know this to be absolutely true. The senior administration is without peer. Young people, I want to challenge you. As you think about the end of what has been a very trying school year and some of you making plans for next year, I, I know that we live in a crazy age. It's a, it's a crazy generation and it, it will put all this weight on your shoulder and it's going to ask you to hop onto this treadmill, this, this relentless treadmill of achievement and run as hard as you can. It's going to put a ladder in front of you and say, climb as high as you can climb. And I just want to put a stake in the ground and say, we believe in all the potential that God has invested in you. 
But don't do that. Or at least don't do just that. Make a commitment of of your time that says, in addition to all the pressure that's over here, I'm going to trust that God cares for me and values me, and I'm going to spend time in the place where I can be reminded of that and affirmed in that. I'm going to make my spiritual life and my spiritual community a priority as I go forward to worship God, to be with people who care about me, to have a safe place where I don't always have to try and justify my existence or my competence to the world. And folk at at MCBC, I want to challenge you to be the kind of place that always feels safe and right for this generation to do that. Put a stake in the ground there. Here's the last little thing I I wanted to touch on today. That key verse, in all things, how does it apply here? Doesn't it mean that every moment, every moment holds within it some opportunity for growth? And I know that there are certain things, probably a whole bunch of things, practices we don't want to engage in. But I love this quote. This is from Dallas, Dallas Willard. It's just, it's rich. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. This is what he says. He says, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. Because God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. That's kind of profound, isn't it? God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. He goes on, he says, if we faithfully discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being the right moment, we simply have no place left to receive his kingdom into our lives. For those situations and moments, they are our lives. Our life presents itself to us as a series of tasks. That's our day-to-day life. And, and Willard goes on to say, in biblical language, these are called trials and tribulations. Just listen to how we carry on. For some of us, the first tribulation of the day is just getting out of bed. And then there's caring for ourselves and getting ready. And then for some of us, there's the commute and then work and and then having to deal with other people. But knowledge of the kingdom, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Those familiar words Jesus uses always to point to the ground for, for God's activity, for growth. Knowledge of the kingdom puts us in a position to welcome everything happening in our life, and that will change your life. Just a few more words from from that book by Dallas Willard. He says, you'll find yourself in your life in circumstances that come every day from the moment you wake up with opportunities to be with God and to grow precisely where you need to grow. If you wrestle with money, he says, if you need to grow financially or in your generosity or in not being so anxious, you will face financial challenges that will help you to grow there. 
And if you need to grow in patience, hey, does anybody need to grow in patience? If you need to grow in patience, you will find yourselves in frustrating circumstances where you can meet God and grow in patience. If you find yourself not being as loving as you want to be. Hmm. Anybody here not as loving as they want to be? You will find that God sends unlovable people into your life. And can I just say, if, if that's not happening, if God's not sending unlovable people into your life, let us know. We'll assign you some. We keep a list. <laughs> there will be an opportunity for you to grow in love, in patience, in soul, in the daily events of your life. When the Bible talks about welcoming trials and tribulations, it's not always talking about the huge catastrophes, the horrifying diagnoses, the, the life-altering events. It's, it's the everyday, in and out, all the time, stuff of life. I have this problem. I have this challenge. What do I do? It's exactly why why James says, the little book of James in chapter 1, in verse 2, he says, brothers and sisters, when troubles come, troubles of any kind, when they come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This week when you see a stack of bills, say, I consider you an opportunity for joy. Or this week when you're on the highway and there's a huge traffic jam, look at all those red lights and say, I consider you an opportunity for joy. This week, when a person who's hard to love comes into your life, maybe they're sitting in the room with you right now, turn to them right now and say, I consider you my opportunity for joy. Actually, maybe don't do that, but, but you know what I mean. What matters is not that you grow up all at once. Paul said, he said it like this, let us not become weary, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, not today, not tomorrow, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. What matters isn't perfection. Spiritual growth is is not about arriving at some destination and then stopping. What matters is not giving up. It will happen. Just like the teenager who one day looks in the mirror and realizes that the body they're walking around in is no longer the body of a child. It will happen. But here's the question. Here is the the question about preconditioning for growth. Are you all in? Are you all in when it comes to following Jesus, to to giving your full devotion, to dedicating yourself, to growing into the man or woman that God made you to be, to dying to sin? Are you all in? 
There's always been this difference, hasn't there, between being an admirer and being a follower. Lots of people admire Jesus. They admire who he was. They admire what he said. They admire what he did. They admire him. But they're not going to follow him. The invitation Jesus gave wasn't for admirers. It was for followers. Now, it's good to admire Jesus, that's always how it would start. When Jesus was wandering around amidst the crowds, they admired him, and that's good, but maybe you find yourself in that category. Let me try and nudge you out of that into the next category, into Jesus' category. No longer just an admirer, but a follower. Here's what's at stake. A friend of Jesus, an admirer, an admirer who became a follower He put it like this in 1 John in chapter 3, in verse 2. Dear friends, John says, Now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him. Are you all in for that? Let me invite you for a few moments to to close your eyes. I'm going to pray together. I want to give you a moment right now simply to respond to what God may have been saying in your life. And particularly if there's some area in your life, this is just between you and God, maybe now is a good time to be honest. What are the barriers to growth? What are the mysteries? Part of what the evil one will do is make us think that it's all foggy and vague and and fuzzy and there's no way through it. If there's any area, money or sexuality, Anger, bitterness, pride, something that's keeping you from a fuller devotion to Jesus. Some habit that gets in the way or some habit that you'd like to cultivate that you haven't been able to to pick up. Would you just bring it to God now? Confess it, set it down in front of him and you say to him, I want to go from being an admirer to a follower. Jesus, you know how much help we need in this one. We need your help from one moment to the next as we navigate life one day at a time. Give it to us, I pray. Give it to our church. In seasons of adversity, in seasons of scarcity, in seasons of growth, be our constant companion as we keep our eyes focused and fixed on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.